If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it now to the book of Romans. I know some of you may be wondering, am I ever going to say anything about Christmas? And the answer is, come next week. You will have a Christmas sermon. But today, we're in Romans chapter 6, and this is a very valuable Uh, chapter in the Bible for Christians understanding who we really are when we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, what our identity truly is. And this chapter does a lot to say that. I want to remind you as I read the passage to you, chapter 6, verses 8 through 14, that we believe at Spring Meadows the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God. That the Bible is not a book about truth, but the Bible itself is truth. And that truth carries with it authority and power to change our lives. And so part of our growth and sanctification is having our minds renewed with the truth so we are to be much engaged and involved with God's Word. So I invite you now to hear God's Word. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that for the next few moments and minutes of time that you will empower the one who speaks and enable the one who listens to receive the truth, to speak it and to receive it and to embrace it and to see it lived out in our life and experience. We pray that as the word goes forth, it will accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it. Just as the rain falls from the heaven and waters the earth so that the earth gives forth plants and buds, so may your word that goes forth from your mouth prosper where you send it. May it create life and hope and love and faith in us. And this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. 
When you think about the concept of identity, and the title of our uh, message is The Believer's True Identity, but if you think of identity as what most people seek, they do that in familiar ways through family and friends, uh, through work, through gender, through ethnicity, through place of birth and residence. Now, it's not a surprise for many of you for me to confess this morning that I am from the southern part of this country. I grew up in the sovereign state of Tennessee. Go Vols! But I grew up in Tennessee, and I grew up in a very small town, and the first question when you met anyone you didn't know they would ask you is, what does your daddy do? What does your daddy do? And then upon hearing the answer, they would tend to categorize you into a particular, put you into a particular cubbyhole, so to, so to speak, as a, a person either worthy of their attention or not. If your dad was a doctor or a lawyer or a professional person or a banker or a businessman or a member of the country club, you were, it's very stratified where I grew up, extremely stratified. And so therefore, those people were regarded as the people who are better than. And people who grew up like I did with a father who had a blue-collar job. He worked for TVA, the power company. And he was a good, solid employee. And my mom worked for a car dealership. She did the books. So that was my heritage. And so when people looked at me, they said, well, and this is in a town of about 10,000 in, in the south, back in the uh, 50s through 1970, uh, that's pretty much how people categorized you and responded to you and reacted to you. And it was almost a caste system sociologically you could not break out of that that's why I live in Nevada today because <laughs> it's not stratified here as it is in other places but these identity markers seem to be very important to many people I, I think that's why in the south you have what I call elder brother country that is these people who are in the upper echelon socially speaking uh, believe that they're Christians because they're better people. And better people are people whom God loves. And so when you preach the gospel to these people in the South, they just look at you like, how can you say that I'm a sinner like these people over here? That's them. That's not me. And it's hard for the gospel to break through that veneer of moralism and superiority. And so in order for a well-to-do, wealthy social climber in the South to be saved is a miracle. Because they think there's nothing wrong with them. They're not the bad sinners. It's the people like me and you who are the people who struggle. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is it totally undoes all of that. It makes all of that irrelevant. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But people identify themselves either by their achievements or by their hardships or by their pastimes, even by being a fan of a particular sports team or college team or musicians they love and follow, or a particular musical genre they think is best. In the Gospels, people identify Jesus by his work, family, and hometown. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. He was also regarded as a prophet. 
He was regarded as Joseph's son from Nazareth. Not very impressive credentials for the son of God in the flesh, huh? But that's how he was known. Uh, that's how he was regarded. And there are ways to identify him, but are not really his identity. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Lord of all. But distinguishing identification from identity is very important. For the believer in Jesus Christ, our identity is shaped and determined by our union with Christ. When you look outside of yourself and in faith, Turn to unite with Christ, to receive him, to become united to him by faith as the Holy Spirit, he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, connects you to himself, it changes everything about you. You have a whole new family. You have a whole new nature. You have new appetites. You have new attitudes. You have new desires. And as a result of being united by Christ, who you really are, according to the truth of Scripture, which is the index of reality, you are united to Christ. You have died with him. You have been resurrected with him, and you will be resurrected and live with him for eternity. All of those things are true of you, and those are the only thing, I hate to say at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, those are the only things that really matter. To have the approval of the one who matters most in the universe, to be loved the way we are loved as believers in Christ, by the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who lost his son for us. So the Bible is filled with what I like to call grace identity statements where the Bible describes who we are. And this is who we really are. Sometimes people ask me, well, am I a sinner or am I a saint? And my answer to that question is yes. You are both. As long as you live in this body, this body of sin, Paul calls it, sinning will always be a struggle for you. Always. It will never go away. It will never stop. It will intensify uh, the more you grow in your faith. But that is who we are in Jesus Christ. So, who we are is seen through our union with Christ and his gospel benefits that he gives to us. And in Romans 6, 1 through 14, it clearly declares that the believer has died and has risen with Christ and now has new life. Romans 6 through 8 and following transitions uh, from uh, the first half in Romans 6, 1 through 7. Now if we have died with Christ, it looks back to that. And the second half, we believe that we also live with him. If we are raised with Christ, we are alive to God. We are, and since we are dead to sin, we can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And now, for the first time in the book of Romans, as we look at these three basic 
uh, truths that I want to drive home to you, we're going to get our first imperatives. Our first commands in the book of Romans will occur in this passage today. And so one of the things that's helpful for a, a person understanding the nature of Christianity is to learn to distinguish between the imperatives of Scripture and the indicatives of Christ, uh, uh, Scripture. Indicatives are the truth about who I am with Christ. And in this passage, I am dead to sin, I am alive to God, I have new life. But then comes the imperatives that flow out of these indicatives. The imperatives are since that's who you really are, since this is true of you, then you are to live your life in this way. He will say that you will take your members of your body that you used to serve sin with and use them to serve righteousness. So that's the gist of the passage. Three things that I want to call your attention to this morning. Number one, if we die with Christ, we live with him. That's verses 8 through 10. Our new life in Christ reveals itself in our minds and our bodies. Okay, that's verses 11 through 14. And then the latter part of verse 14b, we are not under the law, but under grace. And since Christ has done this, here is how we are supposed to live in the obedience that comes out of faith. Number one, if we die with Christ, we live with him. Verses 6 through 7 of Romans 6 elaborated on the implications of our death in Christ. Namely, our former self was crucified with him. Our former self is who we were in Adam. Romans chapter 5 speaks of the human race as being under two heads, one or the other. You're either under Adam or you are in Christ, under Christ. A believer is under Christ. Therefore, the domination and thraldom and power of sin has been broken. Because we've been taken out of one sphere of life and placed into another. We have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and we have been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. So that is a reality that is ours because of what our death and resurrection with Christ means. But verses 8 and 9 elaborate the implications of his resurrection and our union with him. We will live with him. Verse 8, and let me read that for you again in our text. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so, when he speaks of us, we will be raised with Christ. Is he talking about a logical future or a chronological future? And in the original language, it can be either or. Related to the death that preceded it or our chronological future relation to the present moment. That is, if sharing his life this moment, I logically share his res resurrection on the last day, and uh, chronologically, 
I experience new life in the present time. Now, I've talked to you a lot about the already and the not yet. We have already experienced, because of faith in Christ, a spiritual resurrection. We have been raised from the dead spiritually. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But that regeneration, that is God making us alive from above, the power of God coming and resurrecting us spiritually is a present reality for us. But we will not experience the fullness of the resurrection with Christ until we die and leave this body to go and be with him. And then when he comes back, receive our new body. Then we will have the fullness of what it means to be resurrected with Christ. Now, is Paul talking about one of these or the other or both? And from my understanding and reading Pauline literature for some 40 years, I believe he's talking about both. He's not separating these things. They are both realities that we experience in the present. The guarantee of the continuing nature of our new life, beginning now and lasting forever, is to be found in Christ's resurrection. He can't die again, the, t Cox, uh, the uh, text tells us. And one of the things you need to keep in mind is the resurrection is the cosmic event. The cross is also a cosmic event in which Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, as Peter says. But the resurrection is proof positive, God's declaration, that everything Jesus did upon the cross is regarded as successful, regarded as accomplishing what he set out to do, and that is to save sinners from their sins. That is Christ's mission, and he accomplished that, and the resurrection seals that, stamps upon it approval of everything Christ is and of everything Christ did. And so um, Christ can't die again because he's resurrected. Do you remember when Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. He went to the tomb. First he met Mary. Mary was weeping. He comforted Mary. Then on the way to the tomb he meets Martha and Martha gets into it with him, asking the very excuse me. Very same question that uh, Mary asked and Jesus gave her a different answer. He gave her a theological lecture on the resurrection. But when he gets to the tomb, he asks, says, Lazarus, come forth. And when they moved the stone away, people were worried about the stink of death being upon him. And he called him out. And Lazarus, still wrapped in his grave clothes, must have hopped out that grave. It was a beautiful thing, a glorious thing. Jesus wept at the sight of the death. He was angry with an anger we don't even know about at Lazarus being dead. See, we don't, think, we don't think God cares when somebody dies and is snatched and torn from our lives. God hates death. He hates it far more than you do. Jesus hates death. And that is why we're going to live forever when he finishes his process of work in us. But the point is, Lazarus was raised but he died again. He's not around. We can't talk to him. He's gone. He died. Jesus will never die again. He is indestructible. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
Death no longer has any jurisdiction over him. In the book of Revelation, the glorified Lord himself declares in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. The glorified Lord himself declares that he is the living one. And so Jesus's uh, Death on the cross and his resurrection makes a radical difference in the experience of our own lives. John Stott, in his work on Romans, says the following, and I quote him here. Now, Paul summarizes in a neat epigram the death and resurrection of Jesus about what he is, which he has been writing. As he does so, although, he implies that they belong together and must never be separated. He also indicates that there are radical differences between them. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. There is a difference of time, the past event of death, the present experience of life, of nature. He died to sin, bearing its penalty, but lives to God, seeking his glory, and of quality, the death once for all, and the resurrection life continuous. These differences are of importance for our understanding not only of the work of Christ, but also our Christian discipleship, which by our union with Christ begins with a once-for-all death to sin and continues with an unending life of service to God. And so in a moment, I'm going to tell you why it's so important to know these things and to think about these things. Let's look now at point number two uh, in your outline, uh, which speaks of new life revealing itself in our minds and bodies. He says here to, let, let's look together at the next verse. Um, he says, for the death he died, he died to sin. Excuse me, verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You must consider yourselves. Now, people are always asking me, well, Pastor Tim, what am I supposed to do? Well, listen up, because here it comes. This is what you are supposed to do. You are supposed to consistently and regularly think about who you are in Christ. And you are to consider, give thought to, to regard, to deem, to rehearse to yourself over and over this truth. You have died with Christ, and you are dead to sin, and you are alive to God, and you have new life. You say, well, what does that matter? That's how you appropriate the reality of it. You see, many people think, especially in our tradition, it's easy to think that God does everything, right? Because we certainly want to give him the glory for everything that he's done for us uh, in his uh, work of salvation. And so we all believe that being born again or from above is God's work. We do nothing. It's called monergism, one ergo, one person working. And so we're dead in our trespasses and sin. God comes and quickens us. He makes us alive, and we are alive to him. 
and that's regeneration. But when it comes to sanctification, we have a responsible participation. That's what these imperatives, these commands are all about. You are to find yourselves reckoning to yourself, declaring to yourself that I, what difference does it make for me to say that I'm dead to sin? Because it's not normal for us as believers to sin. That's abnormal. Now, the more we rehearse that with ourselves, the more we're beginning to understand that this process of sanctification, though it takes a lifetime and none of us arrive at the end goal of it, which is glorification, without God's, I would say, cataclysmic intervention. Uh, I remember I had a pastor one time that told me that when the rapture occurs, he was a rapture guy, he was a dispensationalist, and he said when Jesus comes back, he's going to have to beat the dirt out of some of you. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I thought, where did you get that? But the reality is we are responsible in our participation of sanctification. Let me read from my professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, R.C. Sproul, uh, talking about this very subject, unless somebody stole it from me. Here it is. No, it isn't. Here's what he says. The work of the Christian life is synergistic, not monergistic. We work with. God works in, we work it out. Our regeneration, our rebirth, was the work of the one person, God. It was not a joint venture, but from the moment we take our first breath of regenerated spiritual life, it becomes a joint effort. That is why the apostle elsewhere says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is working and we are to work. Paul is speaking here to free people, to those whom God has regenerated. But still we are tempted. Still we have weaknesses. We bring a lot of baggage into the Christian life, sinful patterns of behavior, and they do not disappear overnight. What disappears is the bondage. You are free. You do not have to sin. You are not under the utter thraldom and, 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 and um, slavery to sin anymore. Which tells me what? It gives me hope because people can change. Now, I know some of you are looking at me going, I've been married to this man for 30 years. He hasn't changed a bit. Well, maybe not. He's 30 years older. Surely he's changed somehow. But people can change. There's always hope. There's always hope. In Christianity, there's always hope that a person whose life has been ravaged with sin, a person who has done unspeakable things before the face of God, there's always hope that the work of God in the soul can liberate a person from their bondages to sin, their addictions in life, their deep-seated idolatry, and they can become new. They can be delivered. They can grow. They can mature. The fruit of the Spirit can be manifest in their life. But it takes a conscious recognition upon our part to reckon that we are dead to sin and alive to God.
That's who we are. And to act any other way is to act inconsistently with who we really are. And so, we are to consider, reckon, regard, look upon, deem that we have died to sin, that we are alive, and this is how we appropriate it. Here we are faced with the tension between the indicative and the imperative. Paul claims in verse 14 that sin is no longer our master. In effect, it does not reign. Yet this does not prevent him from commanding us not to let sin reign. Sorting out the exact relationship of this idea is not easy. But this much can be said. The victory over sin that God has won for us in Christ is a victory that must be appropriated. Putting away those sins that plague us will be no automatic process, something that will happen without our cooperation. No, Paul insists a determination of our own wills is called for to turn what has happened in principle into actuality. I think this is why so many people struggle with Romans 6 as I have over the years. And it's to say, okay, is it magic? What? Is this a mantra we say? Is this something like hocus pocus? If I say I'm dead to sin, I won't sin anymore? No! Not just no, but may ganoito, as Paul would say. May it never be. Never think it again. But what he does say is that we have been delivered from the dominion, the domination, the utter enslavement of sin and we're free and we can change and we can be new people and there's hope for everyone sometimes I meet people and I talk to them for a little while and in my unbelief and not naivete but just unbelief I look at them and say boy I don't want to be them on judgment day whoa there's a lot of stuff I see that is really bad news. Christ came for sinners. Christ came for broken people. Christ had meals with tax collectors who were cheaters and robbers of God's people, despicable people. Christ allowed a prostitute in her hometown to pour expensive ointment on his feet, weep before his feet, wash his feet with her hair. And Jesus tells Simon after this predicament, Simon goes off, how can he let, how can this man be a prophet and let a person like that touch him? He's unclean. What in the world have we got going on here? What's happening? And Jesus said, Simon, I got a word for you. Tells him a parable about two people. One person, I'm just going to use numbers here, owed their master $500 and the other one owed his master $5 million. He said, the master forgives both debts, Simon. Who will be the most grateful? Who will love that master the most? And he said, well, the one with the five million debt, no doubt. And what Simon did not understand is that he owed five million too. He thought he only had a very small debt. But the fact is, Christ can change you. He can change me. 
He can deliver us from the things we do that destroys us. You men, some of you may be struggling with pornography, and it's something you know that is destructive to you, and it's something you know that's eating you alive inside out, and you don't want to be alone because you know you're tempted, and you know you're going to go there, and you know you're going to look at it. Can Christ break that in you? Yes! Hallelujah, yes! Why? Because you're dead to that. You ever, ever had a person get mad at you and say, you're dead to me? I have. I don't think I've ever said it, but I've had it said. You're dead to me. But we're dead to Mr. Sin. We can change. There's hope. And so, not only are we dead, but we're alive. More alive than we've ever been in our lives. And so the biblical truth and reality comes home that we need to access our grace identity statements remembering that we are both dead and alive. When I was a kid, there was a TV show called Dead and Alive. And it was about a um, cavalry officer who, uh, I think Nick Adams played that part. It was a pretty interesting show. But we are dead and alive. That's part of our identity as Christians. Now, doing this is not screwing up or ginning up our faith to believe what we can't see. It, it is reminding us that volume one of our lives, the life before Christ, is over. That volume two is open and continuing. And that we are now new people. One of the most helpful thinkers regarding Romans 6 has been the Welsh pastor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says something in his volume in um, his series on Romans, for which he preached 14 years through the book of Romans. I imagine if I did that, there might be three people left. <laughs> my wife and my daughter. Maybe my wife and my daughter. But here's what Lloyd-Jones said. And I love this. He says, there's all the difference in the world between being in a given position and realizing you are in that position. Take the case of those poor slaves in the United States of America about 150 years ago. They were in a condition of slavery. Then the Civil War came. And as a result of that war, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom. But many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds, not to say thousands of times, in their afterlives and experiences, many of them did not realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and tremble, tremble and to wonder whether they were going to be sold. You can still be a slave experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. Realize it. Reckon it. 
And so there's a great liberation for those of us who have met Christ. Christ has met us. And now we can, with our bodies, we not only offer our minds by reckoning this to be so, but we begin to offer the instruments of our body. Interesting thing about the word instruments here in the original language is hopla. And hopla means, one of the meanings of hopla is weapon. Before we used our body as weapons of sin unto unrighteousness. Now we can use our body as weapons for righteousness. You do understand that once you become a Christian, and we'll see this more in chapter 7 and following, once you become a Christian, you enter into a warfare and a battle for your soul. You have never, ever experienced the power of oppression the power of sin in our being, the power of the world to conform you into its image, all of those things become enemies. You get three enemies right away once you're united to Christ. The world, the flesh, the devil, they hate you, and they want to destroy you, and you have a battle for your life, but you can overcome by faith because he overcame by faith. Well, so much more to say in so little time. So we're not to offer our bodies any longer to do sin unto righteousness, which leads me to my last th point, point number three, and this will be quick, because we're going to talk about point number three next week and the next week. No, not next week. We're talking about Christmas next week. It'll be the week after and the week after. Here's what he's saying. He says, you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. Now, the short form on this, I could say, it says a whole lot more than this. It says that we are no longer under a covenant of works, which was republished when Moses gave the law to his people uh, in Israel. And now we are no longer under the covenant of works, but we're under the covenant of grace. And the difference between works, ours, and grace is power. We have no power, but under the law, under nomos in the Greek, under law means to be in a relationship with God that's based upon do this and live. The covenant of grace says to you, you are alive, do this. That's the difference. Grace, being under grace doesn't mean that you can play fast and loose with the truth. It does not give you a license to sin. You don't understand grace if you think that's what grace is. Grace is the power to change. It is the power to change. And the gospel of grace is the only power that can change. Because the one who receives Christ has been baptized into the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit indwells us, live with, within us, and we can walk according to the Spirit and not fulfill the law of the flesh. We're delivered. So while there is great hope and optimism for change, you better believe it's always a struggle. It's always a struggle. And it will be.
till we're delivered from this body. So, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. You don't have to do it. You, you can't say that I can't control it, I can't do anything about it. If you are a believer in Christ, yes, you can. And yes, you must. But you're alive. You're alive. you got life in you. Life in you. The life of God is in you. And there's power in His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for this chapter. We pray that we would assimilate this truth into our experience. We would know the reality and power of it. We would sense the glory of it. And so we do pray that those of us who are caught in bondage, it could be to shopping, it could be to pornography, it could be to um, adultery, it could be to any and a million other sins, uh, just being uh, hateful and mean and uh, unforgiving. All of those things we need help with. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue to worship you, you would give us uh, the recognition that everything we have and are is a gift from you. And may we recognize our responsibility and joy and privilege of giving back to you a portion of that which you have entrusted to us as your stewards. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.